for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Get ready. This is a, uh, an intense passage, so we needed Trace to do it. So everybody, Trace, read it nice and slow for us, and everybody give your full attention to Scripture. This is Revelation 19, 1 through 9. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He, had, he has avenged on her blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For this, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He, and he added, These are the true words of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Way to go. Thank you. There were some peals of thunder coming from back there, I think. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Well, I'm glad to be together today. Um, Emily and I have uh, four children, if you don't know. Libby is 10, Sam is 8, Gideon is 4, and then River is just 15 months. And anytime someone asks me, hey, what are you doing tonight? It's like the same thing I do every single night. <laughs> Together with Emily, we are feeding, bathing, cleaning, reading, and then trying to get our children to bed. And we have a very predictable pattern, or we have at least until recently. Um, after dinner, we're cleaning the house, and then Emily is generally bathing River and then reading to him and putting him to bed. That's the baby. I am generally in charge of um, helping the older kids get bathed, jammed, ready for bed. I read to Gideon, and then we put Gideon to bed, and then generally we go into what we very pretentiously call the reading room with our cup of tea, and we'll you know, open up a book and read together for a while. Reading is a big part of our family culture. And the rhythm has gone just like this until recently when uh, Gideon, our four-year-old, no longer would abide by the rhythm as it was. So what's been happening is we're, you know, reading to the older two at night and, and inevitably every three or four minutes Gideon's like, Dad, Mom, and then he's just, he just is tired of being littler than the big kids. And so this week we made a shift and Gideon has been with us, you know, sipping our tea and, and, and reading the book with us. And we just so happen to be in the last book in the Harry Potter series with the big kids, book seven, if you don't know. 
And it was so funny, the other day, uh, Gideon, it's his first night with us, and you can tell that he's excited and he's proud that he's a big kid. And he's sitting there shirtless on the floor, and he interrupts reading and he goes, I'm pretty sure I understand what's going on. <laughs> it's like, you can't possibly understand what's going on because you weren't here for the first six and a half books, but you're really cute. And today, uh, we're continuing in our study of the book of Revelation, and we're really skipping ahead from Revelation 7 to Revelation 19. The, uh, we're following the lectionary, which means that someone else assigns the stuff that we read, and they skip from 7 to 19. Quite frankly, I'm a little bit pleased because there's some tricky, tricky stuff in there. Uh, but I do want to help catch you up so you understand a bit of what's going on in the text here. One of the things that's quite helpful to remember as we're studying the book of Revelation is, is in the book of Revelation, John, you know, channeling the Holy Spirit is helping the churches see both Jesus and themselves uh, as part of this divine cosmic drama. There, there's, the Revelation means it's an unveiling and they're seeing more clearly through this, the lens of apocalyptic literature some of the, the drama and the intensity of this story that they are playing a part of. So the book begins and John introduces what he's up to. He's, he's, he's giving this revelation, this unveiling to the people and Jesus addresses seven letters to these churches in western Turkey called the province of Asia, which tells us that everything that goes on in this book is, is predominantly addressed to these seven churches. It's highly contextual. We get to chapter 4 after these letters and John sees a vision of an open door and he comes through, he hears a voice beckoning him to come through the open door of heaven and he looks and he sees this magnificent throne and the one who sits on the throne with the elders and the creatures. And we get to chapter 5 and we're introduced to this lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing on the throne with him who sits on the throne and Jesus is treated with co-equal to the Father. Heaven had been mourning, looking for the one who could um, fulfill and, and bring to fruition all of God's purposes for the world. It symbolized through the breaking of these seals on a scroll, and heaven mourns because no one can be found to do it except for Jesus the Lamb looking as if he'd been slain. In the chapters that follow, Jesus begins to open these seals, and as he does, trippy things happen on the earth. We, we see in, in Revelation 7 a, a greater picture of the citizenry of heaven that it's people of every tribe and language and people and nation and angels, and it's God's vision for this multiracial, omniracial colony of heaven. He wants to create a family not of one people but of all of the families of the earth. And it's this, this picture of, of the multicultural view around the throne that has funded Christian mission, people sending missionaries all around the world even to really dangerous places. As we move on in Revelation to the part that we've not studied together, we're in chapters 8 through 17 or so, and things really start to get wild. There's these seven trumpets that are blown, and when a trumpet is blown, something new happens on the earth, and there are these bowls that are poured out on the earth. And as you get to chapters 16 and, and 17, we start to really understand, and even before then, uh, the, the, the author begins to name God's enemies. And it's incarnate and pictured in this, these images of a dragon and these two beasts, a beast that comes out of the sea, a beast that comes out of the land. And it's really clear that in the story that the peoples of the earth have to pledge their allegiance to one or the other, but not both. 
Are you going to receive the mark of the beast and be of the the tribe of the beasts and the dragon? Or is your name going to be in the Lamb's book of life and follow the way of the Lamb to conquer through being conquered? And then we get to chapter 17, and perhaps John's original listeners knew what was going on better than we do, but I have to think that about this part in the book, they needed a clue as to what John was talking about and what he was seeing. And we get to chapter 17, and John gives us uh, this meaningful interpretational clue for what's going on in the book. This is 17, 1 through 6. It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Hang with me. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, royal imagery, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries, really descriptive language. The name written on her forehead, she had seven foreheads because she had seven heads. The name written on her many foreheads was a mystery. And the name written on those seven heads was Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The woman and the beast are to blame for the suffering of God's people and their martyrdom. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is the epitome of the bad guys. Babylon represents the institutionalization of evil in a human empire. And on the seven foreheads of this beast that this woman is riding, it says, Babylon the Great. You start to think, okay, but what does that mean? And John says, interestingly, in verse 9, explaining all that he's just put forward, he said, this calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, I'm talking about something without explicitly naming the thing that I'm talking about, but you're obviously not catching on, so let me give you a couple of clues, says John. He says, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Okay. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And these kings have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. So he says the, the, the seven horns represent these seven hills. Well, if you're John's original listening audience, you would know, and students of history would know, Rome is famously built on these seven hills. If you Google the seven hills of Rome, you'll see the, the city is built on these seven hills also referring to seven kings, and, and the readers are like all of a sudden, oh, he's talking about the stuff that we're living through right now. He's talking about our context and the people who are leading our people. This is a huge interpretational key for the passage. In the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon or the empire of Babylon and the references to beasts and dragons are a way of depicting the institutionalization of evil incarnate in human systems. 
It's depicting in a fancy way the human systems that are standing in opposition to God. And then John gets explicit in saying in verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. What is the great city for the original listeners? It's Rome. We realize, oh, all of this beasts and Babylon and dragon stuff, oh, it's talking about the enemies of God in real time. Those, those, the institutionalization of evil in our time through human systems like the government of Rome. And this is really big and important if we even have a, you know, a mild desire to understand and rightly interpret the book of Revelation. For the first listeners, they would appreciate, oh, this is about the drama that's unfolding in the present. And so John might perhaps say to us in parts of his text, quit looking to the future. For those of us who have read the series by Tim LaHaye, quit looking for Nikolai Carpathia, okay? Six of you understood that. <laughs> I'm fine with that number decreasing. To, to a certain extent, he's saying quit looking to the future. Recognize that there is a battle happening right now. The battle is underway between the people of, of the dragon and the beast and the people of the lamb. It's happening now. It calls for sobriety and alertness and radical obedience and courage and unity among all who follow the way of the lamb. And then we get to chapter 18 just before the passage that Trace read for us and we see that the way of the beast and the dragon, the institutionalization of, of these, this evil in human empires is going to come to an end. And speaking about the end of, of these evils, 19 begins, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah. First time the word is used in the book. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who's corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. So salvation belongs to our God. I'm going to talk about salvation today in some ways that may be new to you, that's going to enrich your understanding of what that word means and what God is doing. Salvation is God's answer to the reality of evil and the catastrophe of human rebellion. Salvation is God's answer to the reality of evil and the catastrophe of human rebellion. Uh, Eugene Peterson in his book on Revelation said, if there's no accurate perception of this catastrophe... There can be no adequate perception of salvation, for salvation is God's action that deals with the catastrophe. The world's alternative to salvation is optimism, trying to slap a silver lining on the mess of human history. Optimism is a way of staying useful and being hopeful without having to deal with God. It requires, of course, a much reduced perception of catastrophe to maintain credibility. In other words, to, to merely be optimistic about how bad the, great, the huge human experiment has gone, you have to say, oh, it's not actually that bad. The moral optimist thinks that generous applications of well-intentioned goodwill to the slag heaps of injustice, wickedness, and the world's corruption will put the world gradually but surely in the right. The technological optimist thinks that by vigorously applying scientific intelligence to the problems of poverty, pollution, and neuroses, the world will gradually but surely be put to right. But neither of these forms of optimism worships God. Now, it seems ungracious to be unenthusiastic over such an enormous expenditure of intelligence and goodwill, 
These people, after all, are at least doing something. But the biblical discernment is that spiritual evil motivates their good actions. It's the evil of ignoring or circumventing or denying God. Their efforts to live well, to help others and improve the world are fueled by a determination, conscious or unconscious, to keep God out of who they are and what they're doing. As long as they can rationalize, fantasize, or interpret the catastrophe as something considerably less than catastrophe, they can deny their need of God for salvation, either for themselves or others of the world. What John is trying to do in this whole story is to keep his Christians dealing with God. If Revelation is this, the unveiling of the cosmic drama, one of the things that the Revelation helpfully unveils for us is that humanity is not dealing merely with problems. Problems. Problems can be dealt with. When you have problems, it's not that big of a deal. You put together a, t- a committee. You do a SWOT analysis. You put together a strategic plan. You, delegate, you divide and delegate responsibilities, and then you put it back together with some good accountability, and you deal with your problems. What Revelation is trying to do with these grand depictions is to convince us that we are not dealing in the course of human history with mere problems. What we are dealing with are monsters. I don't know if you saw the news of, of what happened in Buffalo last night. This, this guy wrote a 180-page racial tirade about um, how, how white people are being replaced, and so he took it upon himself to go into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and he took 10 people's lives. That's not a problem. Like That's the evidence of a monstrous spirit at work. That's evil behavior. Revelation shows us that it's not just one monster. There's a, there's a dragon and there are beasts. And communicating, it's a really, really, really monstrous challenge and task that humanity must deal with. These monsters are bent on seducing humanity to join in eradicating all that's true and good and beautiful. And neither you nor I can conquer the monsters of evil and the institutionalizations of wickedness on our own. One of, the thing that, one of the things that John is trying to train us to do is to appreciate that salvation, all the stuff that God is trying to do in the world, comes in the face of intense opposition. There are forces, named forces at work, that are actively trying to thwart the good things that God wants to do in and for the world. The opposition is often felt, it's not always seen, and it's rarely recognized in its true form. Peterson again said, one function of John's vision is to train our perception so that we will never again overlook spiritual opposition. We will likely never see dragons and beasts, but we we see things that carry their essence. You know, behaviors like that guy in the grocery store, this is a work of a beast, of a monster, of a dragon. We need to appreciate that this spiritual drama, this opposition is real. At the same time, the vision raises our adrenaline level so that we bring our energetic best to the high spiritual drama that we participate in every day as we confess the Lordship of Christ. Once having seen this, we are not likely to fight a half-hearted war against a wholehearted enemy. We do not live in a benign or natural world alone. There is malign opposition, an evil will that works to deceive and destroy us. Salvation attacks an enemy. 
In Romans chapter 8, this enemy is named as powers. In 1 Corinthians 2, it's named rulers. Colossians 1, thrones. Ephesians 1, dominions. 1 Peter 5, it's likened to a lion. Scripture also makes clear that in the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the powers and the rulers and thrones and dominions have been disarmed. That the tide of the war has shifted. It's like when the Allied forces landed on Normandy Beach, it was the beginning of the end of the war. They still had to make their way to the eagle's nest, but the tide of war had shifted. Teresa of Avila helpfully warned against people overly obsessing with evil when she said, I don't understand these fears, the devil, the devil, when we can say, God, God, and make the devil tremble. I pay no more attention to them than to flies. The psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The awareness of spiritual opposition calls us to be alert and to be aware, but not to be afraid. As we get into chapter 19, three times in our text, the choir of heaven sings hallelujah, rejoicing in the fall of Babylon. And this is a celebration that God is gutting the forces of evil that are sowing destruction and deception and harm among God's people. Our Bishop Todd Hunter helpfully said this week, he said, when we think of final judgment, God dealing with the evil in the world, what sometimes comes to mind is a kid getting in trouble and going to timeout. God's judgment is not God coming to be mean, it's Him putting things to rights, which reminds me of the scene from Tombstone, oh, make no mistake, it's not revenge He's after, it's a reckoning. That's a good line. Todd said, when I think of his judgment, I think of him coming to say, ladies, there will be no more abuse, not in my new world. Or saying, guys, never again will you be reduced to a function, not in my new world. The hallelujahs of Revelation 19 are hallelujahs of a celebration of the end of all that is evil. And then John goes on to give us two pictures of salvation that ought to fund our imagination for all that God's trying to do in the world. Listen again to verses 6 through 9. John says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her, standing for the righteous acts of God's people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The first image that that John gives us in Revelation 19 of the nature of salvation is he likens it to a feast. Salvation is a feast. It's a celebration. I, I, did, uh, I officiated a wedding a couple of weeks ago. It was so much fun. Just really joyful people and, and the reception. There were lots of people who were just happy and fun and laughing. And it was like, this is really, really great. I don't know the last time you shared a meal with people where you were just so happy. Maybe you had a glass of wine in your hand and you just felt known and loved and content. And these are the kind of feelings and images that are meant to be called to mind when we read Revelation 19 and we think about salvation being like a feast. It connotes intimacy and joy and togetherness and a full belly and a joyful heart. 
makes me think of this line. Um, None of you will know this. Few of you will know this from Don Chaffer, who's the band Waterdeep. He wrote the song in the late 90s. He said, I hope we sit together when Jesus serves the wine so I can look into your eyes when I taste it the first time. Because I know there's no secrets when you're sitting at that table, but I believe we'll smile real knowingly when we read the label. And it says, passion sacrificed to keep from going crazy. We'll tip our glasses to the host who used to look so hazy and then drink it down all sweet and slow and slip inside his mind and realize as it goes down, this is communion wine. It's a beautiful image of sitting at the table and remembering the thing that, that, that causes the table to be a thing that brings together all these disparate people is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We'll see him as he is and it'll be uh, the greatest joy any of us have ever known. In the age to come, there's going to be, the scriptures tell us, this great marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ and his church are forever reunited and God lives among us. But certainly John would have also imagined not only this in a future tense kind of thing, but would have imagined that when the church gets together to tell the story of again and to break bread and to drink wine, that, that in sharing communion, it's a foretaste of the great marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. He gives us this vision of salvation being like a great feast. But then in the, the rest of the chapter that we've not yet read together, he gives us another very different image of salvation of salvation being a battle. This is verses 11 through 16. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and wages war. He's talking about Jesus. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. I don't know what that means. It's cool, though. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I, I, um, I generally try to avoid battle language or militaristic language, especially in church metaphors whenever possible, because Christians have a pretty bad history. Uh, people of all faiths do, but Christians have a bad history of using texts like this to you know, license physical violence in the name of God. That's not called for. So I want you to notice a couple of things that are interesting about this passage and about this battle. One person is named as being armed for battle, and it's the person who's the king of kings and the lord of lords. The weapons that he uses, is it's described as being a sword coming from his mouth, meaning with his words he judges his opposition. I want you to notice that though he has an army with him, he is the one who does justice, not us. God doesn't need anybody to do physical violence on his behalf. But God does have enemies. And there are enemy practices, and these are things that God will not forever abide. He won't tolerate abuse forever. He won't tolerate rape forever. He won't won't tolerate racial hatred forever, physical violence forever. If he did, we'd think him unjust. He gives us these twin pictures that salvation is on the one hand a feast, and on the other hand, it's the front lines of battle, and we need to remember both dynamics. 
If salvation is just a feast, it, it too easily turns into a moralistic, therapeutic, warm and fuzzy feelings fest. If salvation is just the front lines of battle, it becomes combative and defensive and anxious, but both are meant to fund our imagination of what it means that God is doing in the world, and the world's salvation. So how can these twin images of the feast and the front line help us in thinking about what God's trying to do in the world and what He wants to do in our lives? I want to give you just a couple of things. I'm not emotional. I just have something in my throat. (laughs) I have to give that warning because I cry like every other Sunday. First, helps us remember that our life with God must be nourished by time around the table. Our life with God must be nourished with time around the table. Uh, That that image of feasting connotes uh, leisure and delight and intimacy. And I wonder who among us would say that those words describe your life with God. You know, more often than not, I think about like, oh gosh, a sermon is due every week. Leisure, delight, uh, that's not always how I would describe my life with God. It's that image of like John reclining against Jesus' test, his chest. They're just relaxed at meal together. I think about the words of Jesus from Matthew 18. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in spirit, and with me you'll find rest for your souls. Or I think about Jesus after the, he and the disciples had been hounded by crowds, turned to the disciples and said, come with me by yourselves, let's go find a quiet place to rest. Part of our life with God must be this nourishing time around the table that's leisurely and delightful and intimate. We can read the Word, but not in a way just to reproduce it and share it with others. We can talk to God about the things that are going on in our life. We're sharing rich Christian friendships where people are speaking the truth to us and about us. We're resting every week and Sabbath as a way of reminding ourselves that we're not slaves and we're not machines. And all of our life with God is, is built on proximity to Jesus. I've said before, you have no idea just how fragile the people seated to your left and right are on any given Sunday. I think that y'all are a more attractive than average church, you know? But you never know. People come in happy, well-dressed. You have no idea what's going on in the life of someone else. You know how, how close they feel to the breaking point. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I wonder, thinking about salvation as feast, I wonder, is your life with God and your life with the family of God adequately nourishing you to be able to handle the challenges of being a person? Because it's just really hard to be a person. Is your life with God and the family of God adequately nourishing you for the challenge of being a person? The other thing I think this illuminates for us thinking about uh, the salvation as the front lines is it reminds us our life with God and God's purposes in the world, we need to remember it faces demonic opposition. There's a book I like by Stephen Pressfield. It's called The War of Art. I always, I can't never remember the name of this famous book that he wrote, the one about golf, The Legend of Bagger Vance. It was made into a movie with Will Smith. So Pressfield wrote this book on the creative process, The War of Art, and he says, the secret that real writers know that amateurs don't is that the hardest part of writing is not the writing, it's sitting down to write. Everything that keeps you from writing is the resistance. 
And as a person who tries to do creative work, I get that. Like, I want to do anything on planet Earth except for sit down and write a sermon. Because that's the hard part. There's the resistance. And I think it's true that any meaningful step that you feel inclined to take in your life with God, you're going to feel some measure of resistance. Every important step you take in your life with God is going to be undermined, opposed, and resisted. And if you feel resistance and pushback, whether you feel like it's from your own mind or your heart or you just are just not in the mood, if you feel resistance, you should take it as a clue that you're probably going in the right direction. The absence of opposition may indicate that you're really not much of a threat to the enemy. And I think the awareness of spiritual opposition calls for toughness and discernments to be able to name and disarm deception for unity with the people of God and not isolation. How many of us know people who in the last couple of years just kind of drifted away from the local church and have also like walked away from their faith altogether? The opposition calls for unity and not isolation. It also calls for radical decisiveness. Like you may be like marginally Christian, but, but pick a side. Are you for the way of the lamb? Are you for the way of the dragon? Are you giving up your life to pick up the cross and follow Jesus? Or are you going to just pretty much do your own middle class thing? It calls for radical decisiveness. It calls for all of these things, for toughness, for discernment, for unity, for decisiveness, but it does not call for fear. And what's really cool is, is how Psalm 23 is a great companion text to this image of being on the front lines of battle, where he says, you prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. He gives this, this image of muchness. There's an image of leisureliness, of contentment, of joy, of delight when enemies surround you on all sides. And it's a great image for thinking about what we do every week as we receive communion. God has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. We are here in this place of, of, of safety. We're being nourished on the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, as we transition, we go back to the front lines of battle. It calls for awareness, it calls for sobriety, but it does not call for fear. And as we come to the table thinking about these twin dynamics of salvation as feast and salvation as the front lines of battle, I wonder, maybe you're here and it's been a long time since you've leaned into your life with God. Or maybe you've done so in a kind of performative way or ceremonial way. I think Jesus might say to you like he did to the church at Ephesus, return to the love that you had at first. Do the things that you did at first. Remember the innocent place from which you did this. A couple of weeks ago at staff meeting, Holly was there. I asked the staff, remember the first time you did something like ministry-ish just because you loved God? I remember for me, it was, uh, I was a sophomore in high school and we we're going to do this unplugged worship night outside. And I was a zealous kid, as you perhaps are not surprised to know. And I remember I was like pacing around behind my school and praying like, God, if you want to use me in any way, like I'm available. And I preached this like spontaneous sermon. It was probably terrible. I definitely did an altar call. And because we always did altar calls in my church growing up. And, uh, and I was like, wow, like I did that just because I loved you. I wasn't being paid or I didn't have a podcast. I just did it because I loved you. And I wonder if you think about your life with God, like returning to that place of, I just did it because I love him. I, I want to get back to that place of loving him innocently again. Ask him to help you.
Or maybe you'd be aware that you've gotten just suckered into the deception and the opposition of the enemy. You've been lulled into apathy or lukewarmness through lack of routine or affluence or any number of things that just deaden us to the life of God. We're just invited, the Scriptures invite us to repent, to name these realities and return to God. Maybe you'd think about the imagery of of the parable of the sower. Maybe the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth like thorns have crept into the garden of your heart and you just like name to the Lord, these are here and I need your help with them. Or maybe stones have gathered, you've got rocky soil and you can't put down deep roots and you say, Lord Jesus, would you you tend and till the garden of my heart? It's repentance and, and simple returning. All of this, this story reminds us our life with God has to be nourished around the table. It reminds us, you know, salvation faces opposition. But I think one of the best reminders of this whole story, and as we wrap up the book of Revelation next week, is that God is going to win. That all the crappy stuff that's going on in our world that's not just problems but are monsters and the consequences of monstrosities in our world, God is going to deal with these things. Uh, there's the image early in Revelation, and it happened again in, in Revelation 21 that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And if even through the malaise of the things that you're going on, maybe you have no idea what I've been talking about today, but you are empirically aware of the difficulties that you're facing and the frustrations you feel and the despair about the state of our world, I want to remind you that God's going to win. As my dad said to me, he's going to do a good job. And we can put our hope in that because Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will take these words of mine. May they be like the bread and fish of that little kid on the day when you multiplied and fed the 5,000. Would you take these words and bless them and cause them to be something that nourishes the hearts and the souls of your people? Even if they're not, you know, understood, may they still do the work. May we leave having meditated on Scripture, having received Holy Communion, feeling our souls nourished and fed, feeling our hope regenerated. I pray, Lord Jesus, for all of us in this room, you know what we're made of, you know that we're dust, you know how how fickle we are, how forgetful we are, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do a meaningful work in our hearts. We renounce the work of the enemy and we invite the reign of God in our hearts and in our church. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless the people in this room this week with a leisureliness in your presence, not overly worrying about whether they're doing it right, but they would just feel a sense of relaxation in your presence, and may they feel your ear beckoning them to speak. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you do battle against the one who does battle against us, that you guard us, that you protect us, that you deliver us from all evil. I pray especially today as we come to the table that you take this ordinary bread and juice and do something um, by the Spirit that we can't do. May it be a means by which we experience the power and the presence of Jesus who is crowned with many crowns, who has who defeated death, who will disarm our enemy and who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We need his presence today. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. This we pray in Christ's name, for his glory. And everybody said, Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. 
You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.